Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before this episode of the Final Word Podcast, another quick update from our friends at Bricklane Brewing. We are grateful for Bricklane's support through the weekly episode, Storytime. Did you hear Daniel Norcross's wild 904 triumph? Are you kidding me? Start with Storytime 59 and then follow it up with Storytime 60. Totally worth it. And also, the daily episodes. Adam and Jeff have been super busy. You can find all of those, the daily episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can watch them on the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel. There are currently 23,000 subscribers. We'd love to get that to 25,000. So if you are not a subscriber to the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel, please stop by, check it out, and if you like it, subscribe. And then you'll never miss a video. In Cricket, there are great partnerships. Podcasting is no different. It's the partnership between the show, Adam and Jeff, the sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing, and you, the listener. I'd use your name, but I don't know who you are. But thank you. In addition to subscribing to the YouTube channel, please check out Brick Lane Brewing on Instagram and Facebook. Say hello and tell them the final word sent you. You can order all your Brick Lane favorites at bricklanebrewing.com. It's a super easy way to get your hands on all of the various brews. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of the final word. And as always, thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and the final word. I had to go about it This is the final word, Cricket Podcast, a podcast about cricket with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Uh, right off the top, I'd like to welcome to the world Evelyn Annie Richardson, who was born to one of our dear uh, listeners and online friends earlier in the week. Uh, welcome to the world. Hope it goes well for you. Um, and I just saw the look on Adam's face when I mentioned somebody having a baby girl. He looks very happy about that. I do. Evelyn, what a lovely name. Is it one of our, our, our friends on the Patreon page or something like that? Indeed, indeed. Rob Richardson, who we've uh, had oh, on the brilliant. show oh, in terms of numbers and numerology yes. before, has has had that joyous arrival during the week. So uh, salute there. Uh, you're also about to give birth, Adam, to the vaccine game that's happening on Friday. <laughs> I was going to say, we, we, has Rach been briefing you? That's not to say she's pregnant, but <laughs> if I was to find out via you, that would be a turn up for the books. That would be quite funny, actually, yeah. Maybe, yeah, she could punk me and she could tell you, hey, I'm gonna, you can reveal to Adam on the podcast that I'm pregnant again. She's not, yeah. she's not, by the way. I'd love to have another kid, though, at some point. So just you mentioning Rob's arrival mm-hmm. at Evelyn, I'm 
kind of getting clucky again. Yes, we have a vaccine game coming up. It's no longer really the vaccine game, of course. It's the final word 11 uh, taking on the Oval Dream Boys uh, at Dulwich Cricket Club. Four o'clock Friday uh, for those who want to come along. I suppose those who are playing will have to get there before that. These are all things that I am working on. I am working on many things at the same time. One of them is making sure we, we finalise the, the numbers for the vaccine game. But I believe we have 11 players ready to roll. And that is important Hot. in a game of cricket. If you've got 11 players, mm-hmm. that is just... A great game of cricket. It is just the right amount. Not just right. <laughs> and we've got others who, who, who are coming along to watch. And it's still... I kind of guess we're still talking about live streaming it, or that, that feels a bit fanciful. But, Jeff, we have done a live stream where we were at the mm-hmm. pub and we had a couple of iPhones. Or No, that, that was more mm-hmm. sophisticated. But when we did those IPL streams, that was kind of like, you know computers into zoom into youtube like that wasn't rocket science we can do this if we have some technically minded people there here's what you need to do you just need to take a laptop and tether it to a phone and have the umpire hold it with the webcam facing down the pitch (laughs) that's how you do it that would be good you know that that'd be better vision than you get during a a, an ordinary game you don't get that up close and personal actually um, now we're going through it I was originally saying we need cameras at both ends, but why do we need to have cameras at both ends? Until mm-hmm. 1989, cricket in this country on the BBC was only broadcast from one end. The argument being that, as we learnt in calling the shots last year, that the viewer was entitled to feel like they were sitting in one seat all day, so they watched both innings or both ends from, from mm. their one seat. Indeed, Christopher Martin Jenkins, who sort of was quite of a, you know, a, a forward-thinking broadcaster, that was his view uh, that when I read this in a book of his last year when, when preparing that documentary, that he thought that the change to both ends was going to hold the game back, sort of what Packer had done 10 years earlier. He thought staying at one end was better for the sport. So, of course, we watched those scenes from Leeds in 1981. You only see... Uh, you know, behind most of the Australian players because Bob Willis was running towards the camera. But yes, uh, that really means all we need is one phone into Mm -hmm. one Zoom and then we can kind of patch it into the Mm. final word YouTube. And then we will have... And and, and we've had a couple of people say they can commentate. So this actually should work. Yeah. You could literally just have the umpire holding a phone as long as it's got enough battery charge you know i think the problem there leg. i think the problem there is if you have the umpire doing it they're not going to offer a running commentary it wouldn't be very interesting to no. listen to but what i'm thinking is is that i think mel shawley's coming down for example maybe she can be mm-hmm. you know talking into the computer while the computer mm-hmm. is taking the pictures from the cricket in front of them they're in the computer <laughs> i feel they're like i'm in the computer <laughs> i've just worked this out while we're talking maybe we should have worked it out yeah. before we hit record but here we are vaccine game it's friday at dulwich it's friday go along now this wouldn't be the final word if we did not start the show with the most important thing to us yes we're going to talk about afghanistan and cricket yes we're going to talk about england and india the stash they're having with nagraj Golapudi of crick info who's joining the show later on all of those things are more important than this. But as far as things that are very close to our hearts, a week in which, and you will have seen this if you're on the internet, uh, you will know about this, but but maybe some of you haven't. Maybe some of you have been offline. Maybe you've been hiking in in Scotland and you're just tuning back in. We've been, as Bonnie Tyler saying, we've been holding out for a hero. (laughs) We've been waiting for someone in international cricket to start running out the non-striker because when they do, they... They cop grief for it and they decide that they don't want to do it again. Ravichandran Ashwin decided, he, you know, he supports it ethically but he doesn't really want to have to do it again. Kimo Paul decided he didn't want to have to do it again. And yet, and yet, during the week, Maeve Duma playing 
against Uganda for Cameroon. Ran out the non-striker not once, not twice, but four times. Four times in one innings in a T20 match (laughs) across two glorious overs, four times. You would have thought after the first one, the players on the team who had suffered the run out might do something about it, but they did not. They kept wandering out of their crease every time the bowler came in. They kept looking to get a head start on the runs that they wanted to get, which they're allowed to do as per the laws. And you're also allowed as per the laws to take their wickets if you're smart enough and sharp enough to do it. And Maeve did with a brilliant combination of skill and audacity that belongs to the young. Four times the revolution has begun. Others will follow. (laughs) This will be the starting point. This is our Independence Day. The first thing I thought, well well summed up, the first thing I thought when I saw this was, you know, four man cats in one day, <laughs> hiding in the depths of your imagination. Uh, yeah, four, not once, not twice, not thrice, but four times. Uh, yeah, um, I think we have a team, don't we? We are now Cameroon Ultras. That might have had a different meaning at different points through their troubled history, but uh, we are we are going to be Cameroon cricket fans. Why wouldn't we be? So they were playing in the the twenty twenty three Women's T Twenty World Cup African Regional Qualifier. Andrew Nixon supplied me with all the information. Andrew does a wonderful job chronicling associate cricket and especially what's been going on at T Twenty level since we had that open up and liberalised a couple of years ago. With all of these games have international status, so. Yeah, the Mancas didn't help that much because um, Uganda still won by 155 runs. The thing that frustrated mm-hmm. me most with Maeve, but they're good. And, and yeah. Cameroon have barely played. No, that, that's right. And, and Cameroon's mm. a relatively new story. Where I think this is like uh, the first game that Cameroon played, they conceded 300 runs, something like that. So they're, they're just finding their way at the moment. But Uganda were already 153 for one halfway through the 16th over when Maeve. Uh, Maeve Duma, what a legend, decided mm-hmm. to take the bails for the first time. She should have done it earlier on. She got the first wicket, mm. by the way. So she got one far and four mancads to her name. That's a fifer. That's a five should for be. wicket bag for my. Maybe for that's my the reckoning. next thing. Now that we've got, now that the MCC laws are in are now in line with the ICC playing conditions. If you want to learn more about that? Yeah. You can watch our mancad special from when was it, Jeff? April two thousand and nineteen, when the mm-hmm. patron saint of the final word, Ravichandran Ashwin, uh, elected to mancad Joss Butler. We really went deep on it and explained the history and the law and why it's a perfectly acceptable dismissal mode. And also, and people miss this out, when, when when they hear Jeff and I talking about this dismissal, they think we want to see more of them. We do in the short term. In the long term, we would love to see none of them because it would mean the batters are keeping behind the line before the ball is bowled. Mm. And that's fine too. That's fine too. If, uh, like the back pass in football, once they eliminated that, then you saw a, 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 a time of chaos and then things settled down. I wouldn't mind the same thing uh, happening because Maver Duma has been a pioneer in this mm-hmm. space. Uh, so well played her for having the guts to face the backlash. Maybe what I also thought, Jeff, was maybe she didn't realise what was about to happen. Like maybe we've often speculated that it could be through newcomers to the game, relative newcomers to yep. the game, that they won't carry the emotional baggage of the man cat. Mm-hmm. Um, they won't be in the weeds about this. They wouldn't have had debates at, at the pub about it. They'll just see it as a, a mode of dismissal in keeping with the laws of the game and they'll do it and they'll do it repeatedly and that'll be part of their their cricketing experience. That might be the case for Maeva Duma where she just saw it in the laws and 
thought, why not? And didn't realise that there's a bit of a taboo around it. So, yeah, this, this kind of tallies with what we've speculated might happen in the past. It's about the freshness, uh, the fresh look at the laws. It's about yeah. the, uh, the boldness of youth. Duma is 16 years old, just new in the world. Freshly arrived, like Evelyn, just got here really, and and he's saying, well, why not express myself? And that's what I really enjoyed about, uh, you know, watching back over the footage of that match was the expression. It wasn't there was nothing, there was nothing reticent or shy about these runouts. Bang, bails off, and she was <laughs> celebrating. She was dancing. She was jumping up and down with her teammates. They were jumping in the air and doing hip bumps and chest bumps. They were having a great time because they were taking wickets, and, and you know. There are people who will make the argument that cricket is about the contest between bat and ball and that's how it should be. And that is largely true. But you can still be run out. And that is not a contest between bat and ball. That is a contest between keeping your concentration to stay in your ground. And it doesn't matter how you get out of your ground. You can trip over and fall out of your crease and be stumped. You can be backing up and the ball ricochets off the bowler's ankle and back into the stumps. And and nobody says that the fielding side should retract that dismissal because it wasn't a fair contest between bat and ball or whatever it is. And that's an accident as opposed to when somebody actually has the skill and the awareness to watch the non-striker, to see what they're doing, to time it properly and to bang the bales. And what I really liked about all of those runouts was there was no third umpire there. That umpire didn't need to think about it. That umpire got to look across and see players who were a foot out of their crease and go, well, yep, they're definitely out. And the finger went up all four times. Well, it's an ICC event, so it's being overseen by proper ICC umpires. By the way, I've, I've, uh, I've interpreted Andrew's message incorrectly before. This was Cameroon women's first game which makes it even better, I reckon. It's their first game in the tournament, first game as a fully sanctioned international playing nation, whereas Uganda, by contrast, they're the team that scored 300 in a T20 back in 2019, and they're very strong. According to Andrew, they're the best chance of getting past Zimbabwe in this tournament. So that gives you some context around the mismatch between Uganda and Cameroon, but... I mean, you know, sure, we can get tattoos uh, to reflect the achievement of Mavaduma, but I think simply getting a Cameroon women's cricket top with a name on the back will suffice. Um, I, I think so. I think and, we, and we I should. think it's, it's also very important to me that on the scorecard, her initials are MF Duma, almost MF Doom, the great rapper who passed away <laughs> recently. And also in internet speak, you're like, Mave, we'll send you to your motherfucking Doom by running you out when you take liberties at the non-striker's end. It is truly astonishing to me, though, truly astonishing, <laughs> that, say, not even the fourth player, the third player to be run out in that fashion, didn't think, I might want to watch my bat. I might want to leave a bit of bat in the crease as she's coming into bowl. Like, were they, were they just having a nap? During the rest of the innings, did no one tell them? Well, yeah, like- it, it, it looks like watching the footage back, they just continued on backing up way too far. I mean, you think yep. the message might get back to the dressing room that we've got a man catter, <laughs> we've got one, we've got a live, we've got a live one here. And by the way, we, we, we copped a bit of grief yesterday celebrating this on Twitter, as we tend to do, uh, about calling it a man cat, as we've always maintained on the final word. The reason we use the Mancad is we, we've taken ownership. We, we think that, that Vinu Mancad deserves to have this dismissal named after him because we don't think of it as a point of shame. We think of it as a point of pride. So we use that with pride. We don't want to use it. We don't want to say browned out after Bill Brown, the man he ran out mm. twice in 1947. We, we think it's far more important to, to celebrate the ingenuity of, of the great man Vinu Mancad, India's first and great the courage. all-rounder. And the courage, the courage exactly. courage to stand up against orthodoxy. To be, to, to be shamed, to be uh, traduced, to be undermined 
And after all of that, to be able to stand up proudly and say, no, that was me. That was me. That was my decision, um, as it should be. We should celebrate Vino for all of the things he did, the many wickets, the many runs, the double hundreds, the five-wicket hauls, and the fact that he was willing to take a stand on people who were not taking a stand because they were going for a <laughs> fucking walk out of their crease. Stay in your ground and you've got nothing to complain about. It's as simple as that. So we celebrate you, Vinu. Uh, we celebrate you, Maeva Duma. What a legend on international debut for Mancads. More of it, I say. Uh, hopefully at some stage we hear more about her story. There's very little out there about her story for she is only 16 years old. Uh, most of it is still to be written, hopefully, in the great game of cricket, Jeff. <laughs> in the great game of cricket. Michael Caine voice. She was only... 16 years old, and she ran out four players at the non-strikers end. Uh, right, okay, the Ashes, are they happening? Um, you've been following this pretty closely in your, your, your home base in the United Kingdom, Adam, in terms of, oof, I guess, what's going on with England players particularly. A bunch of England players have pulled out of the IPL, which would indicate that they are going to the Ashes, uh, but there are other players who are not so keen on going. On it goes, the back and forth, the rapidly changing situation in Australia, blah, blah, blah. Lay it out for me in in 30 seconds or less. Yes. I think the rapidly changing situation made this more of a problem until maybe a week ago. But now that there are far more jabs going in arms than we might have thought, the rapidly changing situation might be trending in favour of the Ashes going out and being played uninterrupted. So, as you say, Johnny Bairstow, Chris Wokes, David Milan joined Josh Butler and Ben Stokes in not playing in the IPL. And, yeah, some people saw that as, oh, well, that, that means they'll be right for the Ashes. They'll get their extra time at home. I saw it the other way, which is that these guys are knackered and are they really going to subject themselves to a trip to Australia with hard quarantine? And not only that, this is the really important bit of this. It's not just about the 14 days quarantine. I think everybody accepts that's that's the price for doing business. And I think there's a broad acknowledgement that in all probability, the England players will get the, the deluxe treatment. They will do it in a resort possibly in the Gold Coast like the AFL players did last year. And, you know, it won't be that taxing for them compared to sitting in a small hotel room, you know, where you... you know, They're not going to be at the air. IBIS no, in, a, in no, an no, executive right. single room exactly. um, with a view of a brick wall. Exactly. And I think, I mean, I've done it once before and I'm, and I'm looking to do it a second time to get out for the Ashes myself. Like, you, you kind of accept that that's just the way it's going to have to be for the time being. Although, I mentioned before, the rapidly changing situation... Maybe it won't be by December. We'll come back to that in a moment. But okay. after that George DeBell piece uh, about the IPL absentees, Dan Breddy wrote a secondary piece for the SMH and The Age, which kind of laid it all out about how, as he put it, how thinly spread this whole thing is and how difficult it is even for the big nations to keep the show on the road. We saw it at Old Trafford last week. We're seeing it with the IPL. A lot of people are looking into Australia from afar saying, geez, what the fuck's going on there? It's... 19 months after the pandemic started and they've still got half the country in lockdown. Oh, gee, don't, don't fancy that. Don't fancy getting stuck having to do two quarantines in Oz. You know, I understand the anxiety around that. And then an extra layer of the school term dates. So the, usually the players would have their families out for, you know, sort of three weeks over Christmas on an Ashes trip. That's quite standard practice. But because they would quarantine, the players this is in one block, their families and their kids who go to school would come out when the school term ends they would do their 14 days separately and then they would have five days or something like that in Australia before having to turn around and, and, and go back for the new school term. I think James Anderson explained this in his column the other day. So 
the idea of families coming out, yeah, fine, in theory. In reality, mm. they won't see much of them, having just gone through a World T20 uh, in the case of the three format players as well. So it's not just – I mean, I, I said this on Twitter on the weekend – it's not a case of back in the good old days, they jumped on a boat and they were on there for seven months and they played deck cricket and then they went to war afterwards and they came back. Like, yeah, okay. But, you know, community expectations and parenting expectations have changed in the last 60 years, 70 years. Uh-huh. It's not about, and obviously what's happened in the last 18, 19 months, we have a debt of gratitude to these professional cricketers who have been willing to go into a number of uh, COVID safe bubble environments and really affected their. Private lives. Mm. Remembering, of course, that their job doesn't. Their job is a professional cricketer. It doesn't mean it has to be their life, twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. You don't sign up to that when you have any other job. So they have made extra sacrifices to keep things going uh, through the last nineteen months. But all of this, you, you put it into a pot and you stir it around, and you say, "Fuck!" It looks a bit problematic, doesn't it? Because um, <laughs> you know why wouldn't senior England players be like, "I don't fancy that." However, the, here's the caveat. I don't know if you saw today, Jeff, but the projections for 70% and 80% are really quite good in Australia. Um, By that, I mean the rates of vaccination. And it may very well be the case that before we get to the ashes, we've had quite a number of weeks where it's been up to 70 or 80 in some states, Mm. which does give CA flexibility. And this is the main point I want to make today about this topic. CA suddenly, I think, might have quite a bit of flexibility here, whereas they didn't before. It comes down to scheduling. Let's say they're trying to race the clock right mm-hmm. they can affect the clock i mean they can control time a little bit no one's forcing them to play they the first test match time. well they, they can they can control they can they can they're like they're like they're like dr samuel beckett stepped into the quantum loop accelerator and vanished i mean they, they do have the ability to stop the clock a little bit and by that i mean they can just push the test back a little bit if they want to mm. get ahead of this one model i've had put to me is okay what if the ashes start on december 26 at melbourne what if we buy the better part of three more weeks and we go to Melbourne, which by that stage will well and truly be above 80%, probably closer to 90% double jabbed. Then we have Sydney and then we sort of consider it from there. We reroute the schedule. You might say, well, what about the England team and what they have after coming up in the Caribbean? I had a look at this. Um, they start with five T20s at the end of January. The test matches don't start till the second week of March in the Caribbean. The England team could finish the Ashes at you know, let's say the first week of February, then go home and see their family for a couple of weeks, assuming that they've not been with them the whole time, and then still make it to the Caribbean for a tour game before playing the first test match over there. Yeah. It's actually not that it's actually not that sticky at that point. There is a little bit of right. fat at the end. And given given that Australia, if that were the case, Australia would have played four test matches at the back end of the Ashes in 2022. That will be their annual allocation of test matches exhausted and Australia won't need to play for the rest of the year. So well, they'll be fine. Well, I mean, you know, they're all going to go to the IPL in April anyway, right? You know, yeah. we, that's cool. Like, you know, I'm not anti-IPL and like, players should go to the IPL, fill your boots, whatever, no dramas. And they'll have played a home World Cup before it. They're going to be, sorry, an away World Cup. They'll have a home World Cup coming up in October. They'll want to go to the IPL in April. That's fine. This, in theory, in the, let's call it the Collins Lemon model, uh, they will be Mm -hmm. done and dusted with the ashes by, yeah, I guess maybe February the 7th or something like that. Mm -hmm. Ample time to have a bit of R&R, maybe play some domestic cricket and then get off to the IPL thereafter. The reason I'm saying this is that this is an optimistic way of interpreting the world. It gives England's players a chance to go home after the T20 World Cup and then, and this is the bit I missed before in explaining it, they can bring their families with them to quarantine. If they came out for a test oh, yeah. match that was starting on December 26, they could, school-age kids, I mean, 
term would be finishing as they're coming out. Now, I know it's not perfect to go rolling straight from that into a test match, or yeah, it may not quite line up as elegantly as I'm putting it but there. But there's going to be a it'll be a resort sort of situation. There'll be there'll be big jugs of freshly squeezed juice <laughs> by a pool, and you know there'll be golf buggies to drive into the sea. And well, know, they might be able to. Load. Maybe they take their kids out of school one week early. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of at the margins here, but I, what I'm steering towards is there is a way of doing this where they can buy mm-hmm. themselves some time, and based on current projections. Optimistic projections, perhaps, I'm not sure, but mm-hmm. these are from reputable sources saying that in New South Wales, they reckon we'll be above 80% in, on, was it? I think it's like yeah. the 18th of October or something. So that's one state. Brisbane, on the other hand, where the first test is currently scheduled, 5th December. And we don't know what the states will do with each other after yeah. that. So it just gives you that no. latitude. This is where our, our, our situation is, is that in Australia, if depending how you want to define it, the states that have been good at or lucky with managing uh, COVID, you know, where they don't have any cases, the restrictions are likely to be stricter there for longer, whereas the, case, the states that have been bad at or unlucky with uh, managing it who've got cases everywhere are more likely to throw their hands up and say, oh, we'll bugger it. I wouldn't be at all surprised if by early December New South Wales was saying, you don't need to quarantine if you come in from overseas. Potentially, you could just fly them into New South Wales and have the whole ashes. We were going to have the whole ashes in Queensland. We could have the whole ashes in Sydney. Well, yeah, now, 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 now we're one talking. At, one at Blacktown. <laughs> now, now we're one talking. One at North Sydney. One at Coffs Harbour, the big banana. Got to have the yeah. big banana involved, Jeff. Um, you know. Because they could probably just walk out off the plane and start licking people immediately, with the, given the way that trajectory is. But, um, but even up. but even the states that have have a stricter interpretation, like you're, you're right, the, the states that are more locked down, still trying to get to zero, or have gotten to zero in, in WA's case, you could play the fourth test at the Gabba in the final week of January. In other words, buying Queensland another month and a half, and you could play the final test in Perth, where. Based on what we read today, Perth are looking like maybe February might be the point they open their borders to other states. It could be quite elegant where you go, you know, Melbourne, Sydney, Adelaide, who might have a tripartite thing going by then anyway. And then from Adelaide onwards to Brisbane for the penultimate test and Perth to finish. Again, I think, look, I'm sure people are talking about this at Jollymont at some level. Why wouldn't they be? But I don't think we should be so rigidly holding on to December 8, doubly so given Afghanistan's hit the skids. Now that's not happening. The test players don't need to be playing a test one week and a test the next week they'll be preparing via shield cricket anyway so mm-hmm. yeah that that's where i would leave this chat for mine and we know per breeding's piece the domestic season's got hairs all over it right now too you know and this is yep. what dan had in his piece about new south wales victoria and south australia they might have some arrangements between each other they might be just playing yep. cricket against each other for the first half of the and season if, uh, bit of a throwback if, if the lead up to world war one and the assassination of archduke franz ferdinand has taught us anything it's that Nothing goes wrong when you have a tripartite <laughs> pact. The best possible thing to do is have a tripartite pact. You're all in it together. No worries at all. So, One go, we all right. go. Anyway, that's, that's how I'm seeing it. I'm not saying we have any influence here on the podcast, but, gee, it would help. You know, imagine where the vaccine rate could be by the middle mm. of December around the country. Even in, even in states that have got a very hard border, it might just free things up just enough. And this is, by the way... Let's not like give a leave pass to the federal government here. The very fact that we're in this situation is the botching 
the garden variety botching that has been the vaccine rollout from the tepid messaging early doors, the sort of suggestion you can go vaccine shopping and wait for the one you want, all the Fortress Australia dog whistling, the inability to buy the right amount of, of Pfizer, the fetishization mm-hmm. of Pfizer as though it's some magic drug, while well, AstraZeneca's for the for the poor countries and for, for the, the plebs. For the plebs. Yeah. All that bullshit has all happened and put us in this situation, but it can still be fixed with time and a bit of space. So watch this space. We are up against the forces of Nicki Minaj, though. I don't know if you don't know if you caught up with. Um I did. Nicki Minaj. You get Minaj you get you get huge you get huge bollocks, right? If you get uh, yeah. <laughs> my my cousin's friend in Trinidad got the vaccination, and then his testicles swelled up so badly that he had to cancel his wedding. As people have pointed out, the only thing that has side effects of really of <laughs> testicle swelling is chlamydia, which means that he got chlamydia. And then imagine trying to blame to being called off the wedding, <laughs> and he blamed it on the vaccine. <laughs> imagine trying to blame getting done cheating right before you're getting married. Right <laughs> Right before the big day, you've got the clap, you've played some shots, you haven't tapped mm-hmm. up, you've, you've done the wrong thing. You've really done the wrong thing. Going, well, it's a vaccine that did it. It was a vaccine that a did vaccine. it. It's a vaccine. Oh. I, yep, I got that shot and the next thing you knew, I had pendulous warts growing off my extremities, uh, you know, just leaking like a tap. Yeah. Speaking of, yeah, um, there, speaking of there bulging... There are lies that work and there are lies that don't work, all right? Speaking of bulging nether regions, uh, I'm not sure if you caught today Tony Armstrong, who's the wonderful uh, reporter at ABC News Breakfast now. He described um, Tim Bain... Tim Payne? Tim, Tim Bain. This, this, this is what Dim, he did as Dim well. Bain. Tim Bain. as having um, a, a bulging dick, which is why he had to have surgery on his neck rather than Oof. a bulging disc. Australian skipper Tim Payne is set to undergo neck surgery but medical staff remain confident that the veteran will be fit for the ashes. Payne has a bulging dick that has been disc that has been that's a funny one. Bulging what? Disc disc. I said disc. That's what that's what I thought you said. <laughs> Thank you, Tony. I'm just gonna drink water. And Tim put it up on his Instagram story and said, yeah, this is right as well. Um, so uh, Tim's got a, a a bone spur in his spinal okay. column. Uh, he hasn't responded to treatment, which isn't ideal because I would have thought that you know, going Just pick up the phone, well, Tim. Well, Why isn't he responding? Yeah, well, get, <laughs> having surgery the on call. September the fourteenth, when you know, when the yeah. seasons come, you know, this is not the right time to have surgery, right? They've said that he'll be all set by the end of October, able to play domestic cricket in November. But mm-hmm. that that has to be. I mean, that that's a that's a positive case scenario. There is always some risk when it comes to surgery, certainly mm-hmm. when it comes to that part of the body. So, uh, yeah, a story that came out yesterday uh, was well managed. They were quite clear about what they were doing, CA, with, with Tim. But, yes, under the knife today. I suppose the two areas can uh, overlap because you can have a hernia downstairs and you can have a herniated disc upstairs. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I was thinking about it. There was a, a long period of time where, you know, one of the great jobs to have was Australian Test Captain. You know, it's respected, it, there's, there's gravitas. You've got to work hard for it, but it's a great job to have. Then there are the last couple of years when the best job to have is Australian Test Captain. You don't have to do anything. You got your feet up from January to December. You know, you want to pop out and play a couple of games for Tasmania, <laughs> play a bit of club cricket and bowl a few overs in the 50-over stuff <laughs> and in club cricket in Hobart for fun. And the rest of the time, oh, I might have to do a Zoom interview with Peter Lawler once a month or something to, to fulfil the contract. Well, remember, and, he, uh, he, he, went, he went to Darwin as part of the support staff for the um, – for like yeah. a, it wasn't an Australia A team, it was like a – I don't know. It was a bunch of 
It was a bunch of next tier guys coming through. Yeah. He went with um, his old his old former Tassie teammate Shannon Tubb. They were the two. So I'd, I'd imagine they had a massive circuit for two weeks. He and Tubby out on the lash <laughs> whilst coaching the kids. I mean, how good's this? I mean, the, the fact that he's got time to go to the Northern Territory, <laughs> I suppose you'll never, never know if you never, never go. But I mean, going up there for uh, for, for two weeks of uh, front and frivolity, front and frivolity. I'm going well. Whilst yeah. um, notional uh, being an <laughs> assistant coach, tame, tame bin. <laughs> Bim Bim Tain Tain Timabin Timabin Australian Capitan Timabin has a dick problem. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. Tying the whole thread together with Shannon Tub. Right. So that's that's uh, not a problem. Uh, that's not a problem at all. So right. So uh, that's where we've gotten to with Tim Payne. Uh, okay. And where we've gotten to with the Ashes. Yeah. Uh, there are but some we, more serious issues at play this week as well, though, Jeff. Yeah, we have to take a road that, that involves Hobart, uh, that goes goes to Hobart or would have gone to Hobart and does not go to Hobart anymore. Afghanistan. The men's team was supposed to be coming to Hobart to play a test match, something we talked about a lot, something we were looking forward to a lot, um, seeing that, that first step of having... Uh, the first test match they would have played in Australia, the first bilateral match they would have played in Australia, you know, having been there for the 2015 World Cup. But that was uh, that was the only visit from an Afghanistan team so far. Obviously, the country's been overrun by the Taliban uh, in the last couple of months. It's happened extremely quickly, uh, extremely abruptly, and it's prompted a rethink from the Australian end about how things should proceed this is something that brings in government, it brings in administration with Cricket Australia, there's the Tasmanian government's involvement, the federal government's involvement, the Tassie government sort of kicked it off by saying that they wanted to consult the local Hazara community in Hobart about whether it would be appropriate to go ahead with the test match. The federal government was a, a little more quiet on it, although eventually once the story became a story, Richard Colbeck was drawn out on SEN to say that we've made a clear statement that we don't support excluding women from sport at any level. And it was kind of left up to Cricket Australia largely to make a call on it. Now, they've done this in a vague sort of sense. They haven't expressly cancelled the game yet. They've they've phrased things in the subjunctive to say that if recent media reports that women's cricket will not be supported in, in Afghanistan are substantiated, Cricket Australia would have no alternative but to not host Afghanistan for the proposed test. It's uh, blameless sort of language, but we know where they're going with it. Basically, the situation is not going to change in Afghanistan. The Taliban are not going to suddenly say, oh, yeah, we love supporting women in all their endeavours and think that they should be allowed to do what they want. And so effectively, the match is off. Yeah, look, when we left this a couple of weeks ago with Shadi Khan Saif, when we had him on the show to talk about cricket in Afghanistan following uh, the Taliban reclaiming the country, the sense we got through that chat uh, was that cricket would be on surer footing this time than in the Taliban's previous reign uh, on the basis that there'd been such a groundswell of support among local Afghan people for it. Many consider it the national sport, the amazing story of the men's team especially, and indeed even the fact that there had been steps made uh, to have a system in place where women could be playing there sooner rather than later. There'd been these contracts handed out last year and so on. However, I mean, almost at the first time of asking, really, the, the Taliban have told on themselves when um, this question was put by SBS and the spokesperson went on to articulate a position which is thoroughly apparent. And 
maybe one we should have always anticipated. Maybe we should have mm. always saw this coming to a head the moment that the Taliban were back in Kabul a couple of weeks ago, that it was unsustainable to imagine a world where the ICC could have Afghanistan as a member nation when they had such strident views about not only women playing, but, I mean, ridiculous stuff about, you know, they might be subjected to, to cameras taking photos of them and, you know, mm. sort of language that doesn't fit anywhere in the modern world full stop. Remember, the Taliban doesn't reflect the the people of Afghanistan. It reflects a, mm. a, a segment, a militaristic segment, who sort of are set in the dark ages, really, in terms of the way they see the world. So this isn't about religion. It's about a group of people who, who have a thirst for power, megalomania. And here we are, uh, where the ICC have a constitution that expressly forbids uh, excluding women. Uh, the men... Again, great story, one of the greatest stories in world cricket over the last 20 years, yet they are, the, they are in the firing line. This series, if it doesn't go ahead and it won't, like, there's no way they're playing this test match now. Um, Richard Colbeck, you know, a friend of mine, uh, a man of principle, you may, may not expect me to say that about a, a member of this current government, but he genuinely is a man of principle and a cricket lover, a sport lover, a proud Tasmanian, uh, that would have been a tough thing for him to have gone out and said and supporting the test not going ahead there at Bell Reeve Oval. Same applies for Cricket Australia, who, as we know, Jeff, stand to lose quite a lot of money due to their settlement with Channel 7. And I'm sure they'll find a way through that, by the way. I, I don't expect that 7 would be unreasonable about these circumstances. But they're going to have to find an accommodation there, which they otherwise wouldn't have had to if this test went ahead. So mm. all told, I found this quite a difficult issue to grapple with in the last week because part of me instinctively feels as though, and Izzy Westbury articulated this position well, uh, that the only way you can approach this is with a hardline position and to hit the where it hurts most in, in power and in this case the men's team but I also have uh, felt challenged by the alternative view that why would you punish the part of the the, the cricket landscape over there which has been mm. such a source for good and there's this ongoing push and, and pull and which is one of the few good news stories to come out of a country that's done precisely it so horrendously tough not just for the last 20 years since the Americans went in but for the 20 years before that when Absolutely. the Russians went in when the Mujahideen warlords were tearing the place apart between themselves, a place that has where violence and strife has been literally part of daily life for the best part of half a century. Well, and longer. You can go back to the middle of the 19th century when this all started, right? I mean, the push-pull with Afghanistan. I, I feel desperately for the people there who've had the chance to, you know, uh, have a different kind of existence for 20 years, and here we are. And, you know, I'm probably going to say what you're about to say, but the, the cricket team, the men's cricket team, and, you know, the, the positive energy around getting women playing the game. I mean, the, the rug's been pulled from underneath both opportunities there. It, it, it's just a, a desperate situation. Yeah. So the what I thought we'd do here is because I, I don't think either of us come into this like we come into some topics thinking, I've got a great solution, you know, here's what my opinion is. Yeah. Like you, I don't really know what my opinion is and my opinion doesn't really matter but I, I don't think there is an obvious better answer in this case so I thought what we might try to do is assess the arguments and at least try to help people work through you know think through it uh, as we've been trying to think through it while preparing for this show so the argument against hosting Afghanistan is pretty simple that you've got a dictatorial religious regime who've taken over the country violently and who've always been violent and have used violence through their entire existence to try to push a hardline religious view. If they claim to be running the country and you host a team representing that country, then you're in effect endorsing 
that regime. You're supporting that regime and you're supporting what they purport to be their aims, or not what they purport, what actually are their aims, which is that women shouldn't be involved in anything. You know, I mean, the, the previous iterations of the, the Taliban were getting to the point where they were making people paint over the windows of their houses so that people couldn't look in and possibly see a woman inside wearing a burqa. You know, this is the kind of level of insanity that they've got about this idea that women will be perceived outside the family. It goes to that level of extremity. And so in a sport that has been very transparently and obviously and enthusiastically trying to promote the women's side of the game, at least for the last few years, even though it it took a long time to get there, it's completely anathema to support as a full member a country that won't let them participate, right? And so when you look at it like that, it seems pretty black and white. It does look black and white when it couldn't be anything close to black and white, right? I mean, if we took a moral stance on Mm. who we, and I say we in a very general sense here, but let's say we as Australians, based on the politics of the countries uh, sitting on the other side of the net, there'd be a lot of countries that Australia wouldn't engage with. And Afghanistan... countries who wouldn't want to engage with Australia, and fairly so. Perhaps so, perhaps so. I mean, I haven't really thought of the other side of it. But, but, you know, certainly you could mount an argument for a number of countries that would fall into that boat. Yet we've got strong trade relationships with them, and therefore that would never happen strong diplomatic mm-hmm. ties as well. It's very different in Afghanistan. They don't have a lot to offer Australia. So, And also they're not considered a strong cricketing nation. If they had the strength of a team that was in the top four or five teams in the world or something like that, which isn't to say they won't be there, by the way, in a generation or two, certainly in the shortest form of the game, that's the way their trend line's going, considering they were only admitted to the ICC in whatever it was, 2002 or something like that, to where they are now. As I say, it's a staggering story to think they're in the World Cup ahead of Bangladesh this year in mm-hmm. next month. They're in that World Cup. Bangladesh are not in that World Cup. They're in the qualifier tournament trying to get into the World Cup beforehand. So that's where it's not black and white, because if it were... This isn't, in other words, South Africa apartheid, right? So South Africa apartheid was, was a situation where a number of countries, the Commonwealth, said, no, we're not playing ball. And for 21 years, there was an exclusionary policy around South Africa and sport through that apartheid regime. Mm. You know, that, that, was a, that was a decision that was able to be taken because the South African uh, government were part of the club before Afghanistan aren't part of any club. I mean, they're part of the ICC, but this is such a modern thing that they've been involved in with cricket. It's not like they go back a a century or more like a lot of the the cricketing nations that Australia are usually playing against. So it's easy to write it off as well. They're just some some small nation. It doesn't mean anything anyway, and we'll get on with life. Hmm. Well... (laughs) Yeah, I I, I suppose there is that. There's there's the comparative lack of clout. But it also, I mean, the, the South Africa comparison is an interesting one. I, I think I'll come back to that in a little bit. But in terms of weighing up that argument against continuing to engage with them, just just cutting them off completely because of their reprehensible government that's taken over, and I mean, it feels ridiculous to even call it a government. You know, it's a hostile military takeover of, of the entire country under extreme duress and under the intense threat of violence that was cultivated through the previous regime and and through their time out of power where they continued blowing people up right, left and centre. The argument that you can make to say that this match should go ahead and and that Afghanistan shouldn't be questioned as being, you know, part of future tournaments and so on, Hamid Shinwari, who's the CEO of the Afghanistan Cricket Board, 
put this together and, and, and posted up this statement. And he basically says, he concedes that, you know, that yes, this is completely anathema to the way that international cricket is going with wanting to uh, have more women's participation, right? But he's, he also says, try to understand the cultural context of the country that we live in and that we've been trying to have these these meetings of, of modern and conventional ways of thinking in Afghanistan, that they have been working on developing women's players, they have been developing a women's team, they've been having to do it sort of softly, softly because of the cultural environment that they're working in. So he explains the dramatic changes in governmentally uh, in terms of regimes over the last 40 years um, and the quote from him that there's a couple of quotes I'd like to include from him. He says, this has included numerous changes in the governance of our country and approaches to both our traditional cultures and our Islamic faith. The whole country is in flux and transition with the new government as it sets its priorities and policies. The development of women's cricket has been slow in Afghanistan, just as it was for other more traditional cultures. And he references, quite rightly, I think, references Pakistan, Bangladesh, yep. you know, places where even a generation or two ago, uh, women's cricket was treated very hostilely and in a lot of quarters still is. He says, nonetheless, there has been a quiet but significant development of women's cricket over the past 10 years. If CA decides to isolate the Afghan men's national team, it will have no impact upon those cultural and religious values as they stand, but the development of cricket in our country will be stalled. And this seems basically like the the position that Gideon Haig was putting on offsiders on the ABC um, the other day. They're, they're pretty much parallel. Yeah, well, Gideon put a well-meaning but premature response, largely echoing what uh, Hamid Shinwari said late last week. And I sort of appreciate that perspective uh, certainly the bit about traditional cultures using his words there and citing Pakistan I mean we, we told that story before on the final word about Pakistan's mm. first trip to uh, overseas uh, international, in the 1990s in, in, the, in, the, in the late uh, 1997 uh, the story mm. of the Khan sisters effectively being smuggled out of the country just to play amid death threats in newspaper editorials so it's not without precedent that a country that has a very strong view about women's cricket can soften and evolve and now provide mm. enormous support to women's cricket like Pakistan does now. They've got three tiers of professional contracts and sure, it's not perfect, but it's emblem. And, you know, yeah. women's domestic cricket's on telly in Pakistan. I mean, there have been yeah. huge strides forward, um, even in the career of Sun Amir. And we, we, again, we, we've celebrated Sun Amir on this podcast before, but even in her 15 years as an international, so much has changed and so much will change again. So whether... You know, again, as Hamid Shinwari says, that all we are doing is stalling that progress and for the men's team as well in the same decision because presumably this will be a domino effect, right? Australia have made this call, again, using Gideon's words here, well-meaning, this well-meaning call which first blush looks like it might be against their financial interests. It certainly provides a problem for members of the board, incumbent members of the board like Earl Eddings, for example, who is looking for support from Cricket Tasmania according to well-sourced reports uh, in the in the in the uh, nine papers earlier this year, so it hasn't been without some personal cost. Them saying no, we're going to mm. pull the pin on this trip, but they've made the call on the basis that they they can't look past this. Mm-hmm. Again, it, it's fraught, isn't it? Because I, I absolutely see that perspective, but I, I do think that there is going to be the people who will lose out of this won't be the Taliban. It'll be mm. the it'll be the cricketers, and as a rule, I don't like outcomes that affect the people rather than yep. those in power. Yeah, I think one important 
distinction to make is what Hamid Shinwari is talking about, about the broader cultural situation. The idea that women shouldn't be playing sport, that's not just a Taliban thing. That's not purely a, a sort of extremist reactionary kind of idea. Like obviously there's a diversity and plurality of uh, opinions and you know cultural positions in Afghanistan, so I'm, I'm having to generalise. But there would more broadly than in a Taliban supporting sense be people who have those same kind of cultural views that women have these very defined, restrained, restricted roles. I was reading Brett Sutton, the Chief Health Officer, had written a report when he was being a medic in Afghanistan in 2003, I think it was. So, you know, when, when the Taliban were as much on the outer as they've ever been. And talking about this experience of being a medic in remote clinics and treating women who needed better treatment than he could provide, who needed to go to a hospital in a, a town that was a day or two's travel away, and how they wouldn't be able to get there because they would have to be accompanied by their husbands. And they couldn't have both parents leave the children behind or leave a farm behind or whatever it was. And so there were women not getting essential medical care because they were not allowed to travel to the hospital by themselves. That was just unacceptable. That was not even taken into consideration that it could happen that way. So you are dealing with a broader cultural understanding that women are not supposed to do these things. Now, that's something that obviously to you and me seems absurd and seems outdated, but it is the reality of the, the way of life for a lot of people in that country. So for that to change over a period of time was going to need to be gradual. And I've seen a, a lot of people reporting, talking about the cricket, saying that the ICC had already given the Afghanistan board a pass because they didn't have a women's team for the last 10 years and they were supposed to, but they were working on that. They were gradually trying to make that change. And I think that was that is one massive difference that at up until a few months ago, there was the potential, there was the possibility for an Afghanistan women's team. Right now, with the Taliban in control, there is no possibility of that. It is not going to happen. It will not happen. And so I think that's a really important distinction to make when you're looking at the ICC backing the Afghanistan Cricket Board before versus whether it can continue to back that board now. Yeah, that, that was a strong line last week, wasn't it, that CA are happy to effectively shun Afghanistan now, but they were happy to acquiesce and allow the membership as an associate member. And again, as a full member, remember that they went from associate in, yeah, I think it's 2002, to full member in 2017 when they became a test-playing nation. And, you know, this could have been considered then in a more fulsome way. But, mm. yeah, as you say, Jeff, even though there wasn't an Afghanistan women's team, it, it certainly felt like there was a roadmap towards one. Whether that was being prettied up in such a way to satisfy people like you and me. Window dressing. H hard or, for us to know. Not. Really, really hard for us to know. But again, sort of based on the conversation we had a couple of weeks ago with Shadi, he's been covering this story for not just two months, but for sort of a number of years. And his attitude towards it, his positive attitude towards there being real meaningful change towards the women in Afghanistan having a chance to play, being inspired by watching the men on their journey. I mean, it's exactly the same mm. as what we hear with Ireland, for example, who they became full members with back in 17. You hear about the Irish women's journey being kind of the men's journey, but sort of 15 years ago. And that's nice. I like mm -hmm. the idea that one follows the next, that, that one piece of successes has uh, enabled another. But yeah, the, the fact that that won't happen now is galling. 
I'm not sure there is a right answer here, by the way. The ICC, I mentioned like maybe the domino effect of Australia saying mm. no, that might be the catalyst for the ICC saying no. I'm a little bit surprised the ICC haven't been more on the front foot about this and haven't been a bit more forthright in their view. One way or the other, mindful that mm-hmm. there's a World Cup coming up in, I think Afghanistan as being part of the main group won't play for another six weeks. But still, that requires travelling to UAE, going through their own quarantine process. If they have mm-hmm. to replace them in the tournament, that's a massive deal, huge deal. Well, it, it almost global feels story. like... It almost feels like hands over the ears, like let's just hope we can get through this World Cup and we'll worry about it afterwards, like it's too soon to do anything about it now. That may well be what happens, that they, you know, fingers in the ears for the next couple of months, get through the World Cup and deal with it then. But, yeah, this will all come to a head when Australia formally um, cancel this test match, which seems like a, a formality now on the basis that we've had this comment from the Taliban spokesman last week and, you yeah. know, surely that, that isn't sort of a, a rogue comment that's thoroughly in keeping with what no. we, with I what can't we, imagine um, he's getting a call from the other blokes. You know, saying, no, actually. Saying, oh, turn it down. Actually, buddy, yeah, down t- 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 a few notches, put out a retraction, place champion. No, that, that's not what's going on here. So mm. I'm not sure if there is a, you know, like with a lot of things in public life, there isn't a right and wrong answer. There's simply mm. a number of shit answers, a number of bad outcomes, and you just have to pick the least worst. I, I think that this yep. is where we're steering towards here. No matter what, which way administrators mm. go, it is going to be a bad result. It's just which bad result they go for. And here's, here's what I've been trying to to work out is fundamentally you're looking at what option is going to help or hurt the Taliban and what option is going to help or hurt other people in Afghanistan. So talking about that South Africa comparison, because a lot of people have said, look, it's a very morally clear question. We did it with South Africa. You can't support discriminatory government with violent tendencies which would probably rule out about, I don't know, 95% of the world's governments if you held that line. But the the South Africa comparison doesn't work because, as you said, the South Africa wanted to be part of a bigger club of nations. They wanted to be on the inside. And well, they, they were, were on the inside. Out. The crucial point is they yeah. were, they, you know, they were part of the big kids yeah. club, right? Right. And the Talib, like their their whole thing has been isolationist historically they've been about building an islamic caliphate on their own uh, their own interpretation of things which doesn't follow the doctrine where it's more convenient for them and that kind of suits them all right to be left alone you know they, they there is some room for leverage with aid money and things like that but look they'll probably get financial and military assistance from china and they'll probably get it from russia because the governments in those two places do not give a shit about the morals or ethics of the governments that they're supporting. So in a lot of ways, they think, well, who cares if people in Western countries are getting annoyed about this? It doesn't matter. They'll be able to get that other backing pretty easily. So you can cancel matches against Afghanistan. It's not going to hurt the Taliban particularly. But then I suppose the other side of that question is, if you let that Afghanistan team play, does it help the Taliban? Because it will give them legitimacy. It will let spokesmen from their government be able to show up to events and come in and shake hands and be treated as legitimate national leaders just like anybody else who shows up. It shows Afghanistan to the world in a normalised sort of way to say, oh, look, everything's fine. You know, their team's at the World Cup, all, all is good. So is helping a reprehensible government in that way enough of a reason to say don't do it? Or is the other side of that again more important to say that Afghanistan as a country rather than the Taliban as a ruling sect, if Afghanistan as a country has an increased presence in the world, that offers the possibility of increasing pressure on 
the Taliban because that Afghanistan is more visible. There's more engagement with Afghanistan. There are, if there are male Afghan athletes competing in Olympic Games, for instance, and there are no women there, it's going to be extremely obvious that that's the case. Does does having more of a presence in the world allow for more possibility to? set examples for people in Afghanistan to say, here are things that you could be aspiring to, here are ways to try to increase pressure on the government from within and ways to increase pressure on that Taliban government from without. There are so many different ways to look at it and I don't have any sort of answer for it. Yeah, I suppose what you end up doing is reaching around for historical precedent. So, you you know, you've already detailed why South Africa is a tough one, but I suppose you look at other countries where there have been considerable sanctions, economic sanctions and and uh, and beyond. I mean, Iran, Iraq at different times. Has it worked? I mean, I'm probably not fit to judge that question, but, you know, other countries that have been isolated by the world at large, has it been more effective shutting out countries or, or has it been more effective letting them have a seat at the table and trying to steer their behaviour? Is it possible to steer the behaviour of the, of the Taliban? Probably not, because sort of Wahhabist extremists who see the world in such a way, you know, can that change in the space of Rashid Khan's leg-spinning career? Probably not, you know, to be really blunt about it in terms of what this actually means for these young cricketers who've done such a, a proud job for their country in the last 10 years. So, again, it comes back to this idea of is there a roadmap forward? Is there a way forward? Uh, where Afghanistan can play without it lending legitimacy to the people that run the show from the Taliban? Probably not. Is that a price that we are willing to pay as a cricketing community in order to not damage both men and women who play the game in that country? I mean, it's just it's, it's an impossible choice. Yeah. But it's one that has to be arrived at. And hopefully in, a, in this dispassionate way, and I, I hope this conversation is viewed in, in those terms, this isn't about hot takes. It isn't about sort of being overly strident, I don't think. It's about trying to acknowledge that there is loads of grey area here and mm. well-meaning people trying to um, arrive at an outcome that's suitable. And I think CA have, have endeavoured to be part of that, but it's yet to be seen whether it'll be effective or not. We will have to race through the rest of our Far less important points uh, from here. <laughs> I know that you were watching the England-New Zealand series, the women's series, which concluded with the third T20, went right down to the end. Jeff, did you know that Amy Satterthwaite has the best bowling figures for any cricketer in T20 international cricket at Taunton? Six for 17, she took down there as a mm-hmm. 20-year-old bowling seam up in 2007. So that might have partly been why Sophie Devine backed her to bowl at the very death, and it didn't quite play out. Satterthwaite bowls off spin these days, and a big juicy full toss, which uh, Sophia Dunkley whacked away to get the win by, I think it was four wickets, but with like two balls to spare. One of those games of cricket, Jeff, where you didn't really know who was in the lead, so to speak. The Winviers would have been all over the place. And, yeah, and reflected the fact that it was a really balanced series with uh, England winning comprehensively at Chelmsford, New Zealand bouncing back. Uh, superbly in Sophie Devine's 100th game at Hove. And then, yeah, this final game, it did show some green shoots for New Zealand. Brooke Halliday, towards the end of New Zealand's innings, bashing about five boundaries in two overs. I think they hit 50 in the final four, which got them up to where they needed to be to be competitive. I think about 150 or thereabouts. Bates back in the runs after missing out twice. You know, Devine back in form with the ball. Kasparik taking three wickets, including getting on a hat-trick inside the power play. So... Whilst I share your view, Jeff, that New Zealand have some pretty considerable structural issues in terms of setting up for a home World Cup in March and being competitive in the next T20 tournament, I think they are going better right now than they have been for a little while with the next generation slowly sort of having its say 
mentioned Brooke Halliday. It was uh, Maddie Green. I, I do like her. She, she had a couple of good moments in the T20s against Australia as well. Yeah. Not so long ago. I mean, her record. Just, her just record, little bits. Yeah, you? it's little bits, right? It's tiny. Her record's dismal. It really is dreadful. But it's just little things you see and you think maybe they mm-hmm. can sort of find something there. There's something to work with there. You know, Lee Kasprick getting back in the wickets, having copped a pounding in the first game of the series. So now we move to the one-dayers. I mean, Danny White back in the runs for England as well. That was enough to get her into mm-hmm. the one-day squad. I think she made 35 of the 40 runs that England made in the power play, something like that. So White's back into the one-day squad. Likewise, Kate Cross. Likewise, Lauren Winfield-Hill. And Charlie Dean, who didn't play in the T20s, the 20-year-old all-rounder. Let's call her a sort of a batting all-rounder. Bowls quite useful off-spin. Plays for the Vipers and mm-hmm. played for the Spirit in the 100. Been on that pathway for a couple of years too through the Kia Super League. She'll presumably get her debut at some stage in the, in the three games that start on Thursday at Bristol. Then we go Worcestershire, Derbyshire, Leicestershire and Canterbury in the space of about eight days. So it's going to be a very, very busy week for me. But yeah, can't wait. It's been a good series so far. Matthew Hayden is the new coach of Pakistan for the T20 World <laughs> Cup. Who saw this coming when Miss Farrell Huck waved his way out the door, you know, a week ago when Wacko Yunus went with him? That, potentially because they weren't too keen on the squad they'd been given. Bit of trend in that. Rashid Khan as well just quit as Afghanistan captain because yeah. they picked all the blokes from the 2015 World Cup to be his T20 World Cup squad for 2021. Yeah, Matthew Hayden and Vernon Philander. That's that's the coaching duo for, for Pakistan for the T20 World Cup. Yeah. What's going on there? I mean, I, I can't understand a word Matthew Hayden says. How's he going to put across his... Um, his coaching philosophy is about <laughs> the history of Tasmania or whatever it is. Well, this was my main concern. I mean, there is a um, cultural language barrier a lot of the time with, with Pakistan for players that don't speak English as a first language. And Matthew Hayden, you know, his communication style is unique. And uh, they said in their statement that he is Australian, has the experience of winning World Cups and is a great player himself. All of those things are true. He's most certainly certainly Australian. He certainly won World Cups and he's certainly a phenomenal cricketer. Whether that translates to getting the best out of the Pakistan side, well, I'm not going to judge that for the time (laughs) being. No comment. But he and Vernon (laughs) Philander might have have some good nights out when when running that team. I I mean, it kind of took me from left field. I didn't realise that Matthew Hayden was in the market for a... A coaching gig. I thought he was quite settled in the media. I don't think he knew either. Yeah, well, he gets a lot of gigs, right? He works for the BCCI, doing internationals for India. I think he does the IPL, does some stuff yeah, on Channel yeah, 7. So, you know, he, yeah, he, he, he's got a good – makes a good living out of the game. So, mm. I, yeah, I didn't necessarily think that he'd be um, doing an international job, but it's only for the World Cup. Maybe it's just a mm. you know, nice short-term gig, might do it for two months and then – situation normal but yeah it, it'll be fun nothing to way. lose well, you know, think, if they win take the credit well, I, I if don't, they don't uh, yeah, wasn't it, your fault that's possibly the case but remember since the last T20 World Cup back in I mean Christ back in March 2016 it'll be five and a half years between T20 World Cups Pakistan mm. have been the number one ranked team in the world for the vast majority of that five and a half year window not in the last couple of years no no not in the last 18 months in the last 18 months they've given that crown over to Australia, India and England at different points but more often than not, Pakistan have been a, a real force in the shortest form. So I think they're going to that tournament with high expectations. They should make the semifinals. Mm. They should be threatening to win the thing. So it might be the case that Matthew Hayden's a World Cup winning coach. It, uh, could, it could happen. He, 
I mean, this is a guy who's, who's, whose contribution to T20 cricket, as, as best I can remember, is using the mongoose bat in the IPL, oh, yes. pulling out the old mongoose, the, the, the dodgiest bat company that's ever lived. Like, sorry, the most incompetent, certainly. The ones, the ones who were the key backers of the career of chronic cricket fraud Adrian Shankar, uh, who just believed every word that he said and kept trying to flog him to franchises around the world despite the fact that he'd never hit a cricket ball in his life. I mean, this, you know, <laughs> that was what Hados brought to the table. Oh, bring out the old mongoose and whack 40 off 20 balls with it and take your sponsorship money. So, all right, good luck, Pakistan. I hope it works out for you. Uh, Jeff, I'm mindful this has been a mightily long first segment, so I think we have to find time just for a little tiny bit of... Nerd Pledge! Nerd Pledge. It's the game that we play with the people on our Patreon page, the reverse quiz. Here's how it works. They help us make the show. They fund the show for us by sending us contributions a bit at a time and that contribution will not be in the form of a a round number. It will be in the form of a very specific number, Uh, something that relates to cricket and we have to work out what the number means. For instance, Avinash Shenoy has sent through $5.09. That is 509, which could be interpreted as 50.9509.509. Who knows? We've got to work it out. How does it relate to cricket? It's all you. Go, Adam. As soon as I saw 509, I thought 5 for 9. I thought TBA May. Uh, he's one of his finest hours as an Australian bowler. And I thought to myself, well, this might give me a chance to tell the tale of the, the Adelaide 1993 test. And I know, I know what you're thinking. Oh, bloody hell, we know that one, the one where Australia lose by a run. But, hmm. like, we don't discuss the, the three and a half days before that. It was a brilliant test match. One of the greatest test matches ever played. And May was influential throughout, having been recalled to the team. So let's go through it. West Indies bat first, they make 252. Lara Haya scored, Jeff, with 52. He was the only half century in the team. If Lara scored three fewer runs, if they were all out mm. for 249 with Lara top scoring with 49, it might have ticked that Andrew Sampson box. You know that highest innings tallies without a half century? Oh, yeah. He's quite hot on. I've just got mm-hmm. a feeling that's about 240 something. So that might have got there, but not quite. Merv Hughes, 5 for 64 with the ball. Then Australia make 213. I think we've all probably seen the Justin Langer retelling of the, the tale when he gets smacked in the head and he's there mm-hmm. on test taboo. I looked at it. He faced 79 balls. I was balls. thinking of my family. I was thinking of my mum and dad. I had a tear in my eye. I was thinking of the kangaroo and the emu. <laughs> Neither of them can walk backwards, Adam. Neither <laughs> of them can walk backwards. Can't take a backwards step. So Langer made 20 off 79 balls, so he really did tough it out. But it's um, the lower order. So when Steve Waugh was joined by Merv Hughes, they were 112 for six and kind of stuffed. And then they and Merv top scores with 43 and Steve Waugh makes 42. So a close to parity. Australia are 39 mm-hmm. runs behind on the first innings. And then the West Indies start putting a foot down, and this is where Tim May gets involved. So they're 123 for four at one stage, and you know they've got their lead up to 161. They've got six wickets in hand, and then there's the Tim May intervention. First he gets Carl Hooper, then he goes on to get Junior Murray, Ian Bishop, who hit him earlier in the test, Kirtley Ambrose, Winston Benjamin. I was going to say Kenny Benjamin, but I'm pretty sure it was Winston. Mm. There's a collapse of six for 22 all up. Uh, West Indies go from 123 for four, or might be 124 for four, uh, to all out 146, which leaves Australia just 186 to make in two full days after May takes 
five for nine from 6.2 overs. That was his figures, uh, his best mm. in test cricket to really drag Australia back into it. 186 in two days, Dom Sibley's batting for the draw. It, yeah, exactly. But, you know, it doesn't feel like it's going to be a particularly tough task, but, boy, it is. It really, really is. At one stage, they're absolutely stuffed at about... 80 for 7 or something like that. I'm sure I wrote it down. I can't find it here. But Mark Waugh and Langer are batting for a while. Waugh makes 26 and Langer makes 54. And, they, yeah, I think at one point they are about 100 for 8. And then Tim May puts on 44 with Justin Langer. Justin Langer gets out just when they're looking like they're going to steer the thing to victory in comes Craig McDermott with 42 runs to get and they get 40 of them as I'm sure you know Jeff McDermott 18 from 57 the last man out as for Tim May to complete an excellent test match 44 not out from 99 balls and Australia lose by that solitary run the only match ever decided by one run at test level so there's the Edgbaston two runs in 2005 Um, there's the Manchester three runs back in 1902, which Australia won by three runs to win the Ashes at Old Trafford. 1982, the great Melbourne Test match with with Thompson and Border, where Australia lost by three runs. But yes, only one has, has gone down to the wire to that extent. Tim May finished up with 24 tests, taking 75 wickets at 35, including... 21 at 28 in the 1993 Ashes. And really, he got on that trip because of what he did at Adelaide. He's back in the team for Adelaide, bowls well there, gets on the plane, and alongside Warren, they were an incredible force together in that Ashes-winning campaign. He finished off, his last test was also an Ashes win uh, in 94-95 when they won that series, and kind of that was that. He, of course, was a World Cup winner at the start of his career back in 1987. And... Perhaps as important to him as all of that was the fact that he played in South Australia's winning Sheffield Shield team in that 94-95 when they held out for the draw. And he contributed to that. He made a duck on the final afternoon, but absorbed 52 balls uh, to to make his duck. He was the last man out um, before I think it was Shane George and Jason Gillespie got them to the finish line. His career ended one year later. And ever since, he's been instrumental in uh, in leading the fight for players, be it uh, through the Australian Cricketers Association or uh, or the Federal Association association at an international level where he's done a lot of good work so tim may five for nine adelaide in one of the great test matches at 993 thank you adam i like it i like it and i hope that avinash shenoy likes it as well avinash if that number's not correct drop us a message in the dms on patreon and we'll come back to it in the revisit section on story time when we get to that point and because you had the nerd pledge number on this show avinash you get to give away a slab of brick lane beer if you're in australia you could give it away to yourself if you're not in australia you can give it away to someone who is in australia Uh, this is these are just the foibles of how this system works Um, and and instead of telling you all about brick lane and how they're great melbourne citizens and how they make delicious beer i'm going to instead read this message that patrick mckeon sent us on the dms he said currently in lockdown in canberra My hotel room in Barton is overlooking Monica Oval from one balcony and Parliament House from another, which is big (laughs) final word areas. (laughs) And I've just ordered a case of the Avalanche Blue Hazy IPA and a long-sleeved Brick Lane Brewing Community T-shirt. The consistent chat from you both, plus the mellifluous tones of Jay at the beginning of each pod, have really put me in the mood for a night on the tiles. But in lieu of that, I'm going to stay up late watching the test match and sampling some 6.8 percenters from Dad and all. <laughs> Thank you, Pat. And you too could be doing that uh, brick 
lanebrewing.com. Uh, go and check out their wares. I feel a bit sorry for Pat because presumably he's, I think he sent that message uh, before the Manchester Test match that wasn't. So instead I of. I think it was maybe before the Oval Test. Oh, I right. All the better. Got his Test match in. All the better. Imagine watching that phenomenal Test match while enjoying a few Brick Lane brews. It's been great mm. having them on board the last few months and looking forward to a long relationship with them into the future. All their information is in the show notes. Do as Pat's done, buy some of their beer and let us know. Uh, add them to social media. Uh, all the handles are in, in the show notes mm-hmm. there. On, in the podcast feed or on YouTube. Add them, tag them into your photo and um, we'll let the good times roll with Brick Lane and Brewing. Good people, good things. Let's have the mid-show break and then we are going to chat with Nagraj Golapaludi about India, England and all that business with the Manchester Test. G'day guys, this is Jimmy Neesham. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Leon. Hey Sachin. Guess what? It wasn't that hard. Wisdom Cricket Monthly, the best cricket magazine in the world. Edition 48. In the world. Can you believe it? Edition 48 on shelves this week. And across page two and page three, I've seen it with my own eyes, is the photo I took, Jeff, when India won the test match <laughs> at the Oval uh, a couple of weeks ago. And they're in bold alongside by Adam Collins. So they've, they've credited right. me in ways that Sachin couldn't. But it's a, a lovely thing to see when you open a magazine and to see a photo you've taken. So very kind mm-hmm. of them uh, to look after me in that respect. But it isn't on the cover. That's Liam Livingston, who is making quite the impression, be it for England or in the 100 or in any other form of cricket he plays at the moment, really. And with the T20 World Cup around the corner, it was the right time for them to sit down with Livo and uh, interview him, knowing that it's his time to be the cover star. White Ball World Cup is coming up next month. Livo, what a what a nickname. Was some real creative work there. Well done, the UK again, really neck and neck with Australia in the nickname Stakes. At least the cover of WCM was a little bit more creative. They went with... Liam Livingston, I presume. Very good. Yes, yep, very yes. good. Cultural reference. They describe him as the smash hit of the summer. I'd rather they described him as the feel good hit of the summer. <laughs> Nicotine value, marijuana, ecstasy, and alcohol. But uh, look, whatever. Maybe that'd be Alex Hales if that was. I remember uh, singing that. <laughs> I remember singing that when. Um, I won't name the player. Uh, remember when? Okay, remember when in two thousand and seven, uh, a, a television network got hold of a footballer's uh, files, quite mm. medical files, quite famously, and it reported a couple of oh, yeah. positive drug tests. Well, when ever said player got the ball, cocaine. We're really giving it the big ones from the chorus of that song on that day at the Docklands. Anyway, long time ago now. Classy, classy football supporter. Yeah, it was one of our own players. It was all good, allegedly. Uh, wow, imagine Dennis Cometti doing that gag. All right. So, <laughs> look, Livingston's had a pretty exciting season. He hit a ball over the grandstand at Headingley, and frankly, that's all you really need to do. Hit a ball over the grandstand anywhere and people will be interested. Albert yeah, Trott did it. Yeah. They're still talking oh, about it 150 years later. I saw the bat um, yesterday. I dropped into Lords yesterday and saw Albert Trott's bat and thought of you, hmm. uh, given it was on the pod a little while ago. So Albert Trott, yeah, threw a kettle over a pub and hit a ball over the pavilion, and Liam mm-hmm. Livingston joined Joss Butler in doing that uh, at Leeds during the summer. So he's got it going on. And the fact that it's coming out in September... But it's the October edition. We've gone through this okay. before, yep. haven't we? Still doesn't make sense to me. It's coming I still out in September. Why, why don't they just call the one that comes out in October the October edition? Well, this is coming no, out on would... September 16. So it's coming out on yeah, Thursday. But, the World yeah, Cup is but, being played in October when Liam yeah. Livingston will be playing for England in the UAE. 
albeit yep. in a tournament that only really gets going in the final week of October, it'll mostly be dominating By November. By which time the November issue will be out. Exactly. So none of this makes any sense. I'm going to write a stern letter at some point. <laughs> they just need to have like two October editions back to back or something. And Dear sir. Just make it right. <laughs> Dear sir, I am not a crank. Um, so he's also playing in the IPL before then, Liam Livingston. Yeah. Uh, he created one of the memes of the summer with his sad Liam Livingston face when they lost the match in the 100. That was my that one contribution. That was my one contribution to the 100, I think. I took yeah. a photo of him off the television as it happened. And I, I didn't yeah. do a lot with the 100. But I, I, feel I like screenshotted I, him at the same time and never did anything with it. But I was like, the composition, it looks exactly like, not the Mona Lisa, but what's the one? What's what's the one with the mother and child? Like one of those sort of Madonna and child photos by the paintings, not photos <laughs> by one of the Dutch masters. Didn't have the cannon uh, out. <laughs> yeah, it it really. I don't know. It really has that composition. The the colouring, the the um the sort of pastel coloration of the the kit for whatever team he was playing for. I don't even remember. But anyway, he's on the front cover. They're talking to him. They're talking about him. They're talking to and about a whole lot of other people. So Javid Dad has got an interview in there. I don't know if they asked him about the Pepsi cap. I hope they did. Oh. Uh, if they didn't, we're going to have words. Alice Capsi, there's an interview with her, the teenage sensation from The 100. Um, Tanya Aldred is going back to Lancashire's unexpected triumph in the Champo. Taha Hashim oh, is ago. writing about what it's like to be an England selector, which is, I'd actually be quite interested in. Every time they advertise the Australian selector's job, I always think, like, I should just put in an application for fun. But, you know, then I can't be bothered doing it. Um, uh, Lawrence Booth is writing about Yorkshire's investigation into Azim Rafiq's allegations, which drags on and on and on. And there's all the usual stuff. There's the county files. There's a feature uh, that... Phil Walker's done called the yeah. iconography of cricket where they're looking at great images from the game's golden age and there's Andy Saltzman doing his TMS stato crazy stuff. So a million things in the mag, you should get it. Yeah, I was sitting with Phil when he was working on that a couple of weeks ago. So that's going to be part of a new series uh, where uh, Phil goes into one era at a time and, and picks out some of the defining images of that. So a bit of a passion project for him there. So uh, Wisdom Cricket Monthly, we said it's the best magazine in the world. Tons of columnists to dig into as always and the best unrivaled coverage of the county game. WCM is a partner of The Final Word and thus we have a code or, or a URL that includes those two acronyms, bit.ly forward slash WCM. CMTFW, that will get you a 44% discount on six editions of the magazine. So 44%, which works out to be about 10 quid or 15 Australian dollars. Many, many final word listeners have done precisely that over the last couple of years. All that information in the show notes. Wisdom Cricket Monthly out again on shelves this week. Bit.ly forward slash WCMTFW. No code required for 44% off. Hi, I'm Isha Gua, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Levin. This is The Final Word with Jeff Levin and Adam Collins, and we are joined, very happy to be joined, by Nagraj Golapudi, who is the ESPN Crick Info uh, India correspondent. There aren't too many quiet and relaxed weeks in terms of the politics of Indian cricket, Nagraj, but the last week has probably been less quiet and less relaxed than most others. Yeah, very quiet. Nothing happened, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not, nothing at all happened then it started happening last wednesday uh, i'm not sure what, how to describe it i mean i just like i was telling you guys earlier it's just the chaos and confusion which is always prevailing but for some reason it has shifted to cricket for once during the potori trophy <laughs> the first it was so engrossing so enthralling and we were talking about spells of bowling 
uh, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't use the word T20 word matchup, but there was a matchup happening between Bumrah and the certain batters and Joe Root, the way he kind of just was in command. And I was just like looking forward to how is he going to seal this series in a sense? How is he going to finish this series? Like he, he had such a big record on uh, on the cusp of such a big record of becoming the first batsman doing whatever number of runs, gazillion amount of runs. Yeah. And then what actually I felt I blame the ECB is that why were there no guidelines dropped? Why were there certain defined boundaries? There were no defined boundaries and that kind of led to this such a chaos. And it started with the started with the head coach, Indian head coach testing positive first, and then moved on to an assistant physio testing positive. And that's when the players got rattled. And you know the whole story now. Hmm. How is it? being perceived because it's it's very easy for this to become uh, some uh, something that goes along nationalist lines that uh, the people in England were pretty keen to be annoyed at the Indian team it was their fault then power brokers in India are pretty keen to take offense at that sort of thing and and turn it into a you against us us against them kind of situation and lost in the middle of it is the actual story about what actually happened true but uh what all you said especially us against them etc we still don't know that's a perception that's an outside perception not not an inside one what really happened and even i wouldn't know and you wouldn't know till we are one of the players and the players really we trust the players but it is clear that the players put their foot down it is clear that close to midnight on was the test starting on friday friday yes. yeah so close to midnight on thursday the decision was made that you're packing your bags and you're leaving and that was only because bcci was left with no choice because the players said we can't play and there were multiple reasons. The biggest one was obviously the mental thing, the the fear that what if it, another person suffers and what happens then? What do you want to do? Uh, how are you going to treat the situation? And they got rattled. And once they got rattled, they for once they came together and they addressed. I, I just feel this is my, again, I'm just basing it on what I have heard is like, they came together and they confronted the BCC and said, look, I, we can't play. And when your senior players, and which includes your leadership group, let's not take names, but you know who they are, say, I can't play, or I'm highly reluctant to play unless, and ECB is trying, like Tom Harrison was saying that, we tried every possible way to see, is there anything that we can put in place to mitigate the circumstance? There is nothing. What do you do with a closed dressing room at Old Trafford? How do you address that? There's nothing nowhere else. Are you going to make the players sit outside in the stands? No, the stands are full. So what are you going to do? how do you address that so these are kind of questions that came through the mind of the players and then they said look this is what we can yeah did you, we cannot. yeah so so when jeff and i last talked about this on friday probably within an hour and a half of the uh, the cancellation of the test match the conclusion we arrived at was that the players and the BCCI made the rational evaluation that if any player tested positive, they'd be stuck in the UK. Uh, Public Health England guidelines would have them stuck here for 10 more days and that would uh, not only leave them isolated in the UK, but would mean they wouldn't get back in time for the Indian Premier League. So that gave fuel to the fire. It's all the IPL. It's it's the big beast that's the IPL that's ruining this final test match. And if you want to dig around some of the, the forums online, which I do periodically around county cricket, that's the strong message in, and, and a number of former players have, have sort of said the same. Would it be reasonable to say that it's not, this wasn't about the IPL, but to ignore that it was at least a small input or, or a driving factor uh, that if they got stuck here, they could miss some of the IPL. You can't completely divorce that either. That It's a little bit of the puzzle, but it's not the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, you can't 
entirely blame the IPL, but, but the, it is the IPL that kind of also was in the background. If the IPL was starting a week later, you would have the test match played, correct? So it's simple as that. It's the tight window. You couldn't do anything about it. And the most important thing, I just feel that for, from the BCCI's point of view, money and all is obviously there, but because even ECB is thinking money right now to hold that and conduct that match or extra D20s or whatever to cover up for the losses. But for the BCCI, it's, I felt it's more from the UAE government's point of view. If you have someone positive coming into the country, you have tight restrictions there in within the UAE, and then that they don't want that to have an impact on the T20 World Cup because it's very, very. They've had various kinds of discussions around what this bubble would be for these two tournaments, and they don't want to have an impact. Franchises themselves started messaging me saying that, "What? How did this happen?" Because they were worried. These guys are going to. Some of these guys are going to enter so the five, six franchises who had their players. They were going to enter their bubble. They've already like worked hard to clear the one. Something happens if if X Y Z player goes into the franchise and tests positive tomorrow. That's news. If regardless of how you address the situation, it's news and it is bad news. And BCCI doesn't want that bad news to happen on the eve of the World Cup. I I feel those are the things. But I, I just want to know what the ECB felt. I don't know what you guys. I'm sure you've what how the ECB thought. How did the ECB looked at it when they were talking to the players or the BCCI? Well, I, I think you can read a fair bit from from Tom Harrison's comments. Really, it's 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 he's been a fairly open book on this. They're blindsided by it, but the idea of guidelines being there to oversee what safe living. I mean, you you were spot on before in how you put it. How did we end up in a situation where it wasn't set out very clearly what safe living meant, which could have eliminated some of the risk? And we go back to the book launch, and we've talked a lot about the book launch already, and perhaps we won't back over it now. But Mal Khan was tweeting during the week, Nagraj, I'm sure you saw uh, what Mal had to say when he was working with Cricket Australia uh, last year before he came back and uh, started working as a journalist again. And according to Mal, uh, Ravi Shastri's attitude towards mask wearing and generally the COVID provisions when India were in Australia was fairly lax. That is, he, he thought that he could kind of run his own race. So it's not entirely out of step with his personality that he would take a, a fairly liberal uh, interpretation to, to safe living, thus the book launch. And if that was the, the catalyst and the start of the chain reaction, uh, I think that the ECB are right to think that that deserves a bit of scrutiny. Whether Tom Harrison was there or not, by the way, it sort of doesn't really matter who else was there. It was the players in side of that environment and the, the members of the team inside that environment who have to wear uh, responsibility, uh, I think, for, for the decisions they made at that time. Yeah, uh, it's true. But at the same time, I think Shastri, apparently in Australia, and I was not there, you were there, I'm guessing. Yeah, so was you there, guys yeah. were there. You, you are closer to and what the rules were. And I think they were far more stricter compared to what Indian team experienced in because they, they couldn't move around at yep. certain yep. places. And they had to be restricted. And that's what they really felt these are people who are who might not have a sense of entitlement, but they are like they they kind of feel that they need certain kind of freedom, and you can expect that a elite athlete does does need that kind of uh, time to break out, kind of break away, and not think cricket. And it was getting they were traveling from the IPL, so yes, as a head coach, he had his responsibility to stand by his players and try and fight for whatever it is. Like even if it comes across as inappropriate behavior in that sense, responding to the Brisbane government saying that you can't break these rules and Indian BCCI saying that we're threatening that we'll pull out of the tool. Wasn't there a talk like that? Yeah, yeah, that absolutely. Point? Yeah, well, at the very end, it was it was to do with 
Well, a, a number of threats were issued, uh, you know, carefully placed stories were issued about the, the tour not proceeding and, and, and they got there in the end. It was all fine and, of course, we know how that story ends. But, yeah, I wonder, just to back over something you said before about the players driving this decision, not so much the BCCI yeah. and, and the fact that they went to the organisation, that, that interests me. So player strength but also the fact that from a BCCI perspective, administratively, they would have been quite happy for this test to go ahead. It was the players who were really pushing the uh, pushing back and saying, we, we rather not. It's the fear. That's what I just said. I just go back to that. I think the players would have played the test. It's it's They wanted to win the series, right? Or whatever it is, they wanted to. They would have played, even if an understrength Indian side would have played it. And they would have, they had enough players to cover up, even if there were some of the top guys who were suffering from nickels and one or two could have been rested for the final test, including Bumbra, I thought, would not play that test match. So it would have been an interesting test match to watch. Who would have it? England could have drawn the series. But... The, the, the thing that is coming to me from this episode, and this could just become a, a, a sort of pattern or I don't know whether they're having a, for a new kind of player power. I'm sorry, I just feel that this is the first time I'm seeing players in Indian cricket coming together in a way after a long time to push and collectively say that we are tired. You need to understand our issues. If you remember when Kohli left in June, on June 1st or 2nd, when he, I think it was the 2nd when he gave the press conference before leaving for the World Test Championship final, he was asked a question about the mental workload, right? Uh, in addition to the physical, whatever the workload you have, uh, playing the World Test Championship final, followed by the England tour, followed by IPL, followed by t- t- a never-ending this, um, a conveyor belt of cricket. He said that at some point we are going to break and people have to take measures. And now they've taken it in their own hands that, look, we feel this is a situation we need to address and boards need to address too. And boards need to consider that. And that's what Tom Harrison said, that we are playing too much cricket, even if he's just like putting a bandaid on something, a wound that they created in a way, partially. They have played a hand in creating this wound. I, I don't see how this will be resolved if in, in bigger series. I mean, like we have Ashes coming up, it'll be interesting to see five match series again, how this, they cope with that. If something similar happens. Ultimately, what they've won, these players, is a a few days respite. That's about it. Um, it's not like they've won themselves a, a whole lot of time off that grind. They, they have to keep going back into it. It, it is interesting that there is... There's no players' union in India. Um, the Australian Cricketers Association is a big part of the political landscape of the sport in Australia. They're an influential body. There's there's no representative body, equivalent body for Indian players. Does something like this hint at the beginnings of, of some sort of collective bargaining okay. power, or is it just is it just that a few players at the moment have enough power that they have the clout to make the BCCI listen to them? Yes, I think it's a temporary one. Till Kohli is there and this, I don't know when the next generation will think differently. Right now, Kohli has been talking about this for a while. He's been saying that that's why in the last year or two, you see certain players not playing marquee series. So, and I guess the pandemic has come uh, to kind of help also you have the best all-rounders in the world like Stokes sitting down. And I, I heard that, st- was it Kohli who got surprised totally that, wow, Ben Stokes talking mental health in that sense, right? Because you can see that this is the best athlete in the world cricket. And he's saying that I need time off. So there is something serious happening here. And I think, I don't know, th- this is a potential dangerous situation for all boards. 
David Warner pulls out of ashes again. Let's hold, let's see. This I'm taking an example, or a Steve Smith pulls out. That has a big impact on a marquee tournament. So administrators really need to figure out, I mean, how they're going to do this. Okay, they might say this is a temporary thing. We are going to live with the pandemic anyway, uh, which is going to be hopefully endemic at point <laughs> at some point. And then we'll carry on. It'll, life will be as normal. But I think this is also a chance for players to really, world players to kind of get together. I've never, I've always been surprised that why captains can't get together and have a word with each other and bring bring that to the ICC. Yeah, that, that's certainly how it's meant to be, isn't it? The captains are meant to, to sort of run the game, but it, it seldom feels like they do in, in practice. Our colleague Lawrence Booth had a story yesterday, Nagraj, that the BCCI have offered to play uh, two T20 internationals in Manchester next summer. They'll already be here yeah. playing three one-dayers as part of the World Cup Super League, I think it'll be, and three T20s as well as part of the bilateral commitments, but they'll tack on two T20s instead of playing the test match. So originally, and Jeff, this came up after we recorded on Friday, a number of people in our YouTube comments said, well, hang on, they're going to play the test next year. It's not not always lost. And that's how it felt for about 48 hours and until Lawrence's story that it now seems as though a test will be replaced by two T20s when they're already here. Now, I suppose you could debate uh, the merits of playing one test match, whether it is to be tacked on the end of this series, albeit 12 months later, whether it's a standalone test match, whether it counts World Test Championship points, whether India needs to fly out an independent test squad. You can almost park all of those conversations to one side and simply look at the, the, the philosophical idea that do two T20 internationals uh, equal a test match commercially? Can the ECB uh, make their money back? And like, how do you interpret uh, that offer compared to what it felt like on Friday when it was going to be a test match? Well, I think it, it, that was part of the discussion. This, it's like it, it, it happened on that between those 20, less than 24 hours between Wednesday evening, in fact, 12 hours between Wednesday and Thursday mid-afternoon or something. These discussions were happening between ECB and BCCI that how do we do this? If we, BCCI had made up its mind. It had made up its mind as soon as it got the feeling from the players that they're not going to play, right? So then they started moving to the next step and that's where they got stuck at. And these discussions were happening between those two boards saying that, well, how do we do this now? I'm losing this money. So oh, the first step is it's very easy. Just add two T20s. It's very easy. It's just you have to, uh, and T20 cricket will get you a lot of more money and the broadcasters will be happy, etc. But it is more, for me, it is the question is about the fans, right? They wanted, they paid, they they looked at this test match months in advance or maybe a year in advance. And they booked their tickets, they made their summer schedule accordingly. And they are the ones who are suffering. The, both boards have said we are sorry about it and all that. But the fans are like, who is the, the fans are the stakeholders and no one has asked them whether, whether they can they would want a test match or whether they would want a T20, right? But there is, the, you can see there is an appeal for test cricket and compelling test cricket, even if it's a one-off test. I mean, I, personally, I just feel that why can't they just play as part of the series next, next part of this series, even if there would be a certain few players who will not be part of it because it's such an extraordinary situation. Why don't you play that? And you have the same level of points and then you play it at the same venue. If you can create that sort of, I mean, obviously you'll have to play at Old Trafford, otherwise they will, Lancashire will be very uh, offended in case they, they play somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the bigger question to me that has anyone thought about the fans? Are you just making those decisions purely on a monetary basis? But it, it's a weird kind of concept to get your head around that, it, it doesn't feel like it would work to be part of the same series if it's a year later. It's it's not. 
the same series. It's like it's like the grandfather's axe, you know, with with three new axe heads and four new axe handles. It, it's not the same thing a year later because it's a different time. The players are at different stages in their careers. It is something else. True, but it's such it's a one off, right? It's not going to happen. Mm. This is not a common occurrence. I'm just saying that because after such a nice series, it might just somehow, even if it feels off, really, it is a situation that has. I don't know. I mean, oh, you played as a one-off test. No one's going to help, but played as a test. What would be the vote on this between three of us? Would you want T20 or T20? Well, I, I think I support it on a couple of grounds. The idea is it's been portrayed. One is that it's unusual, so we can kind of get around the idea of a, an unusual thing happening in cricket. We tend to like that in cricket, unusual occurrences. Two is that, as you say, Nagraj, the fans have paid for test match tickets. We know that there's a way of transferring those to the next year. That's what I had at the Oval two weeks ago. All those tickets were reissued from last year to this year. So logistically, all of the workers who missed out on the chance to come and spend five days earning money, it isn't just about the 22 players. There is an industry around it. There's a, there's a carnival around it, and you can, you can do that next year. And I think last but not least, and Will McPherson made this point on Twitter, how how pissed off would everyone be if Ben Stokes, Jofra Archer uh, and whoever else uh, who's not playing at the moment comes back and beats India in the fifth test match? They they square the series to all. The anger would, would fuel the world. We wouldn't need to worry about carbon emissions for a couple of years because you could, you could fuel the planet uh, on the basis of the anger from Indian fans, which would be amusing if nothing else. So I think that there is... A- but that's what I'm saying, that... This is this is a chance opportunity for the players. Ask them what do they want? Do they want to play a one-off test? Do they want to play this as a continuation? Ask the players. Ask Kohli whether he would be willing to do that. I really would want to know. But also, there's the World Test Championship, right? So the the, the World Test Championship points remain unresolved. So even Correct. if it is a one-off uh, test I mean, for the quite a bit of yeah, I mean you you could yeah. you could interpret it as a one-off test match, not count to the series. I'm being facetious about. Uh, Indian fans being furious, by the way, before you go uh, and go after me in the YouTube comments. But the the point here is that uh, there, there would be a way of it still counting for World Test Championship points based on the percentage system they implemented before the second cycle, uh, where it is played as a one-off, a la Delhi in 1996, Nagraj. <laughs> I don't want to go that far, but I just feel that the, the thing for me is what does Kohli want? He wanted to win here, okay? He really was so, on Wednesday, apparently, were you there at the ground on Wednesday at training at Old Trafford? Apparently, he was bubbling. He was, like, full of enthusiasm that I'm actually there. Like, this. now they have to believe that this Indian team, now we have won. This is one place where we did not win for a long time, and now we're winning here too. Now you got to respect us. And, you know, Kohli wants that sort of uh, many commentators have said that this has been a legacy tour for him. And yes, it is. He wanted to leave a mark. And he has, despite not doing much with the bat, he has not been very fluent with the bat. He has managed to create a unit that that was leading to one going into the final test, which is a unique thing. So, yeah, I don't know what I want Kohli to answer that question. And coming back to the confusion, quickly, I want to wrap this is that you can see what happened with BCCI yesterday. The top two bosses, what uh, Ganguly says one thing first, saying that this should be a one-off test, surely. Sometime later, he corrects himself in another interview, apparently, and says that this is going to be part, a continuation of the series. Then you have the BCCS secretary saying that, yes, we have offered to the B, uh, to ECB two T20s, and they cannot impose themselves with one test. So you can see the sense of confusion between the two boards. And ECB has said that they've written to ICC, which claim that they have not it's nothing has come to us. So even the boards don't know. 
forget us trying to resolve. Even the boards don't know what they want. I just get this. Uh, I, I can't understand. Like that's why I feel that the players. Is, this is an opportunity. Talk, talk. Go ahead and talk. Take this forward. Um, whether they will do that, I don't know. They might be doing it quietly. Maybe Kohli has said it already that I I don't want to play this as a one-off test. Maybe he has said it. I want to play it as one-off test because of the points. Because of that, that's crucial. What is your understanding of of what the interests of each board would be? Because aside from replacing the match and the money, the broadcast money that you know they need to put matches on in order to get the money from Sky and all the rest of it, there's also the matter of the insurance for the costs to the ECB from having the cancellation, where if it's a forfeited match, then they can claim their insurance money. If it's a cancelled match due to COVID, they can't claim their insurance money. So the ECB is trying to run the line that because nobody actually had COVID, it's not a COVID cancellation, but it's all about... So the Indian board doesn't want to accept that because they don't want want to forfeit. They want to say that the test match wasn't played. How do you see this playing out in terms of who wants what and, uh, you know, what the potential variables would be? I don't think they would take it to that point where both boards are clashing with each other and that will leave bad blood between these are two key players at the ICC board and they want to be unified regardless of their differences. Uh, So I don't see this going to the disputes resolutions because then the lawyers will interpret it either way and either depends how and the ICC wouldn't want that to happen. So they would mutually agree to something. BCC will never agree that they have forfeited that's impossible. That will kind of, the World Test Championship will just fall flat <laughs> there and then that if India pulls out, India will say, I'll pull out of this now. I mean, I'm, I'm just being very, I'm exaggerating the situation, but I just feel that clearly, uh, I don't know about the insurance. I don't want to kind of act as an expert. I really do not know the ECB rules. I've been told that there is no insurance, if I remember correctly. It's only from the fans' perspective, there is an insurance to re, uh, refund the money, etc., but not as far as the cancellation goes of the test match. On the uh, on the players again, uh, just to kind of do a bit of sitting of the record here, there was a, a some furor on Saturday when some players flew out on private jets back to India. So within 24 hours of the test being cancelled, they were, they were on their, their flights saying, aha, it's proof all along. They didn't want to be here. They were they were rushing back to the Indian Premier League. They were going to Dubai. They have to quarantine. This is all some giant conspiracy. Can you just unp- unpick that for us? Because I think that's important to set the record straight there that, I mean, yes, it might have looked bad. <laughs> I-, I accept that it may have looked bad if you wanted to look through that lens. But really, there was a practical element to this. And what point was there them sitting around in a hotel room till Wednesday anyway? I mean, you could see sense that by the time the BCCI sent out the release, some might have even boarded the flight, like the Mumbai Indians players. They were already there, right? Like Rohit, Bumra, Surya were already like on board. They had taken the flight. They were the first set of players to land in uh, Abu Dhabi or yeah, UAE. And then Kohli and Siraj went. These were the only two charter flights. The rest of the players were flying commercial flights, um, if, uh, if my sources are correct. So uh, it, it is bad. It looks bad as an image. It looks that hours after when you were supposed to be in the field, you're actually flying to the UAE with the IPL in mind. So does that mean that you really didn't want to play at all and you were just focused on IPL? I personally feel that was not their motive. Their thing was like, let's move on. Let's go there, isolate ourselves, make sure that this doesn't kind of breach the IPL bubble now. 
if some one of us falls positive, while we are isolating, it will at least not impact have an impact on the IPL. And that that was the reason that they had to move fast because once the series once they have decided that the series is not going forward, there's they did think about postponing it right by a day or two, and that didn't work out too. So if once that you are known that you have to take that next step, which is to kind of okay, let's leave the country, let's move on. They didn't feel England is unsafe. I don't think that was the case, right? This is not the it is not that England is unsafe. They were they were moving around the streets. They were having their takeaways. They were sitting around, and oh, I'm sure we have we've not touched upon the book launch where there were people from outside. I'm guessing I was not there, but hopefully the players were not kind of they were uh, they were on the one side and the guests were on the other side. So. Um, so I don't think from Indian players' perspective, the England as such as a place was unsafe. It's just that that's what it is in this world that you have to move your tournament starts in nine days time. At that point, they were looking at it and I need to isolate for five days or six days actually in the UAE. And let me do that. Let me just kind of cover up that time instead of... Well, it's a story that is going to keep rolling in one way or another, maybe all the way up until the Manchester Test of next year when, when we do it all again. Maybe it'll get cancelled a second time. That'd be funny. Uh, Nagraj Golapudi, thank you so much for joining The Final Word. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Hi, I'm Natalie Jamonis, and you listen to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. This is The Final Word. With Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, thank you to Nagraj for taking the time to chat with us in another quiet and relaxing week covering Indian cricket. It always is that way. So there are there are times when I'm I'm grateful that that's not my main beat, Adam. As story after story rolls through, I think we've come to the end of another show. We have, and as we leave, I've mentioned the vaccine game off the top. I'll mention it at the end as well. We had uh, Mark Henderson from Dulwich uh, on the show a couple of months ago talking about the amazing Griffin st- Sports complex for women and girls uh, there at Dulwich. It's a ground which is going to be exclusively used for the women's and girls divisions as of next year. Uh, they've got to raise five grand though to get a square in operation for season 2022 and as part of that, his daughter Anna uh, who we've talked about an awful lot on the show over the years and she's been on Sky Cricket. Her leg spin has been featured. Uh, they are trying to raise money via all the 176 runs she made this year in the under 10s at Dulwich. So I'll put something in the show notes there but if you want to make a contribution to helping Dulwich get their girls and women off to the new ground next year you can do that and we can't wait to be there ourselves at Dulwich with the final word 11 on Friday for the vaccine game against the Oval Dream Boys. Absolutely Uh, you had better get some sort of streaming in operation because uh, there's no formal matches on Friday that I'm aware of I don't have to work on Friday (laughs) night so I expect to be watching that game one way or another from Melbourne. We have been doing this across countries and who knows how long we'll have to continue doing that it's been a long year with a lot of work going into the final word so special thanks to everyone who's on the patron and more people signing up it's been bloody amazing it has continued to be a a source of joy and wonder and a revelation in our lives that people want to help us keep making this this show story time on the weekends the dailies when they come around and, and then the other sort of on the horizon projects that we keep thinking of things that we might be able to do into the future. So thank you one and all. Thanks to Brick Lane for sponsoring the show with their delicious uh, alcoholic and sometimes non-alcoholic beverages. Check them out, bricklanebrewing.com. Thanks to Wisdom Cricket Monthly. Get yourself a discount subscription if you don't have one already. Why wouldn't you? And uh, thanks to David Collins 
for editing the show. It's on the Bad Producer Podcast Network. Check out their other programs if you want some more listening. And thanks to Adam for being here with me every week, except occasionally when he's Daniel Norcross recently. Works for me, Jeff. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Just to reiterate what you said there, uh, everyone that's jumped on Patreon or found us through YouTube as well, uh, that's, again, a source of joy to both of us that that YouTube channel is up to about two and a half million people who've watched it now in whatever it's been. We've only really had two nine proper months. goes. We, yeah, we, nine months, but really about four months when you consider when we've been putting some real mm. effort into it. So that's pretty cool. And we'll be back with all the daily shows soon. And in the short term, story time. I'm back for story time this week, uh, back in for Daniel Norcross. Uh, we've got some uh, stories that we would like to tell you. We do. We had to go about it. Right around. Sorry if I ran into empty broke this, so you know what I meant here. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to fail, had to fall just for what I did well. And there's some stories I can tell you. Thanks for listening to the Final Word Cricket Podcast. All of Adam and Jeff's previous episodes are available at finalwordcricket.com, including Storytime 20. That's 40 story times ago. 40. Almost a year's worth of nerd pledge. Why Storytime 20? Because it features comedian Will Anderson. It's a great chat. I think you're going to love it. FinalWordCricket.com for all things Final Word. And thanks once again to our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. Shop online at BrickLaneBrewing.com. Thanks for listening. More from Adam and Jeff real soon.